Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by the Google Assistant. The Google Assistant is ready to help you get more done with just your voice in the car, at home, and everywhere you take your phone. When you're driving and want to listen to this podcast hands-free, just say, hey, Google, play the latest episode of The Dave Chang Show. Sure. Here's the latest episode of The Dave Chang Show. Lessons from a billionaire investment titan, Michael Novogratz, The Dave Chang Show. A little help, hands-free. Just say, hey, Google, to get started. And now, The Dave Chang Show. the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Thank you to Yola Tango, as always, for letting us use their music in the intro. Today, we have my good friend, one of the best chefs in the world, Sean Brock. We spoke at the 92nd Street Y. I moderated a talk with him. He published his new cookbook called South, Essential Recipes and New Explorations. It's a wonderful book. If you are a fan of Sean, if you don't know his work, he is one of the experts of Southern cuisine and finding all the micro regions and the stories behind it. But even if you know Sean's work, there are new recipes and new techniques. And as he's evolved as a chef, this is a sort of a a documentation of his maturation and the things that he's learned. And He's got a lot of good recipes. Even if you know nothing about Southern food, they're just really good common sense recipes and tips and great pickle recipes. I love pickle recipes. So check it out, buy it. It's going to be good for home cooks and professional cooks alike. So we, last week or a couple weeks ago, uh, we spoke at the 92nd Street Y. Big shout out to the whole team there, Taj and his team helped us do a little trade-off. We were going to be able to do the talk with Sean and air this as a podcast. So there is a live audience and the recording is in the auditorium at the 92nd Street Y. So if it sounds live, because it was live. Um, Wanted to get to a couple other topics before we start the podcast with Sean. Number one, by the time this airs, our new series on Netflix called Breakfast, Lunch, and Dinner will air. So if you haven't seen it yet, please check it out. Appreciate the support. BLD, the acronym, we filmed it with the entire Ugly Delicious team, the creative team behind it with Tremolo Productions and Major Dome Media, uh, Morgan Neville, who won an Oscar for 20 Feet from Stardom and recently made the, the great documentary on Mr. Rogers. We try to do something a little bit different I still have a hard time describing it other than we go to four different cities with four, I would say, sort of modern icons, uh, and we just ate and had a good time. I want us to sit down with Morgan and some of the team from BLD slash Ugly Delicious and sort of go over what happened and you know the time we started uh, shooting with Kate McKinnon in Phnom Penh. We went to Vancouver with Seth Rogen. Chrissy Teigen took us to her favorite place, Marrakesh. And Lena Waithe, as busy as she was, decided let's discover Los Angeles in a different way. And um, I'm really proud of what happened, what we did, and everyone that was part of this process. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for making this happen. 
it's been a lot of fun, and I am, uh, how should I say, it's just weird to get this out there. Never thought that as a cook, I would have these opportunities. But again, um, very, very honored to have them, and hopefully you guys enjoy it. On another note, our good friend, two guests that have been on this podcast, Gabrielle Camara and Jessica Coslow, are opening up their new restaurant co-venture in Santa Monica called Onda. And check out those podcasts that we did with them because they're some of the best chefs around. And uh, I'm excited to check it out. I'm going to eat there, I think, this week. Definitely want to give them a shout out. Check out BLD. Check out Onda if you're in Los Angeles. And get Sean's new book, South, Essential Recipes and New Explorations. And here is my live conversation at the 92nd Street Y with Sean Brock. Wow. This is our second time doing something like this here. Pretty strange. Yeah. Did you ever think that your career would wind up doing two cookbooks and being here on a big tour? I was just signing the books thinking, like, this is the weirdest thing. <laughs> it's just so strange. And it's just, I think it'll always be strange. I like it being strange. Do you think that it ever comes across as like false modesty to people? Like, hey, this should be so normal to you right now. No, I don't care. <laughs> um, what inspired you to write this book that's so different than the first book? What's neat about books is that it's, it's, a, it's a journal that captures the snapshot of a, of a part of our journeys. You know, like this one, if you go through, through Heritage, it was... Like we were digging around trying to find all these seeds and then fast forward to South and we found these seeds and we've grown them and now what can we do with them? That's just kind of neat to be able to, to document that along the way. And we've known each other, man, how many years now? I met you uh, a few weeks after you opened Noodle Bar. So, and we, we hung out a bunch. We had some... Memorable times. <laughs> and Some of which has been on TV. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, I'm just thinking about some things, but we can't talk about it right now. Um, <laughs> and when I visited you in Charleston many years ago, I saw that you were discovering a narrative, a voice that many chefs around the world were trying to figure out, right? The story of themselves. They were trying to figure out something to say. And like many younger chefs at the time, the late nineties, early aughts, we were all so impressionable by what was happening around us. You had molecular gastronomy, the modern cuisine movement that still has its remnants today. You had people bringing back some of the message of uh, Passard and Gagnier from France and Michel Bras. We were all influenced by that. But around that time when I met you, you were beginning to discover something that I was like, when you first told me, you're like, hey, I want to figure out the South. And I thought, and I remember, I was like, what's he talking about? Isn't a story already been told? What didn't you know at that time, like 15 years ago, 
I think it started out and kind of came from being around the people uh, in the South who were digging so deep through the, the to the history of the cooking um, and searching for the lost seeds and going through all the agricultural journals and saying, reading these things um, where these plants and animal breeds were just being, people were writing songs about them, but because they were so delicious and no one was growing them. They were, they were, they weren't in production. They weren't anywhere. And so as you start to dig through those old cookbooks uh, and journals and you start reading about these ingredients, you have to taste them. It's like, I have to taste that rice pea. I have to taste that, that, that first peanut that came into the South. And so that's where the journey begins. And you start digging around and you meet some amazing people along the way. Is that what most people don't understand about Southern food are the stories and the ingredients? I'll never forget that. I don't even remember the name of that, like the heirloom carrot. Or, and you're like, it's still warm from the sun. Yeah. You know, and, and you've always had this romantic understanding of food and its provenance. Do you think that gets translated in Southern food? Is that what's missing in the misunderstanding of Southern food? Well, what's neat about Southern food is so much of it lies in the spoken word, like narrative. There's not a ton of cookbooks, especially if you look at where I'm from in Appalachia. Um, Cooks purposely don't use recipes as a source of pride. Don't write anything down. And... um, that's, that makes it hard to, to find those things because they, they're, they're few and far between. And so that shows the value of that passing down to, to, to the next generation, those stories, saving those seeds, because that's a huge, super strong thread that's keeping all that together, such a huge part of, of culture. So that's Southern food. What about the South and Southerners? You just spoke about Appalachia. I bet you many people in this audience have aware of it, but do they know where it is, geography, and the history of it? A cool thing is I'm still learning. Like, I don't even really know because the South is so much bigger than, um, than you think it is. And it's always just been grouped together as one thing, this one place. But if, you, um, if you're flipping through the book, you'll see the South beside continental Europe. It's like they're almost the same size. That's pretty crazy to look at it that way. Um, and within the South, there's so much to be discovered, so much just in every corner of, of all the different regions are micro-regions, and the cuisines are so different. Is it competitive? Do, do, you, do you think <laughs> now that people in the South are like, no, that's not the real South, this is the South, this is Southern food? Yeah, I mean, food has always been a huge source of communal pride. It's like college football. You know, you start to get, I mean, just look at barbecue. It's like that's, I mean, a lot of fist fights have happened in the South over Duke's mayonnaise versus Hellman's mayonnaise. <laughs> at least in my family. <laughs> <laughs> Can you quickly explain, because I always found it incredibly enlightening when you told me the difference between Nashville food and Charleston food? Just because, like, I take it for granted because I spent time with you, but maybe people in the audience don't understand. It's like, yeah, one's on the coast and one's inland, but just two regions. Can you explain the difference, Charleston versus Nashville, in the, in the ingredients you, you use down there? 
Yeah, it's, I mean, having opened four Husk in four different cities, it was amazing to be able to, to research those cities on an intense level to, to purposely say, what is the cuisine of this place? And how is Charleston different from Savannah? Um, and you got you to gotta start talking to the old timers. You got to start talking to the older generation um, to look for those, those old, old traditions. Um, in, in Charleston, it's certainly a cuisine centered around um, the history of the, the rice plantation. It all goes back to agriculture and, and the geography. And so if, if you're that close to um, those beautiful waters, you're going to get amazing seafood. But if you're in Nashville... I mean, we barely serve seafood. Um, it's, I didn't grow up eating seafood. If you were eating seafood, you caught it with a fishing pole. Um, if you're eating fish, not seafood, we didn't have. <laughs> um, and so I think a great way to, I think there are some dishes uh, in, in, in the Southern canon that can showcase those differences. Um, shrimp and grits is one. Cornbread is one. Um, barbecue, I mean... Jeez, if, if you look at barbecue and you say, okay, what are the major elements? The meat, the cooking technique, the sauce, and the wood used. And if you go to each region and you write those things down, it'll all make sense when you see it on a map. Just within Tennessee, you know, I have to remind myself, I better understand microregions just through barbecue. And Tennessee is east versus west. It's, it's, it's a real battle. Yeah, so neat. And, and every cuisine is like that in the South. And I think the difference between Nashville and Charleston is, I think, it also is a social thing. It's also, it can, you can really start thinking about it in, in that way. And, you know, Nashville is a meat and three kind of city. It's, a, it's you grab your, your tray and you walk through the line and you, you've been to Arnold's. It's the best restaurant. <laughs> It really is. Like, he took me there. I was like, what, why are we going anywhere else? This is the best. It's my favorite restaurant, still is. Yeah, same here. Um, yeah, it's just, it could go on and on and on. Um, I mean, the funny thing is, is we both were born and raised in Virginia. And when you tell people, I always have to tell people, I'm Northern Virginia. Virginia's a perfect example. You're from, like, real Virginia. <laughs> That's what you said the first time. You're like, oh, you're from real Virginia. Because <laughs> I feel like the South really doesn't begin until you hit Richmond, which is I believe about, yeah. you know, 100 miles south of Washington, D.C., or like 60 miles west of D.C. when you get to Winchester. It is I would agree with that. very distinctly different, and the food immediately gets different. Can, what, what, can you explain these micro-regions? We both grew up in a state... That's pretty decent size. How can it be so diverse? Yeah, when I started really looking into all this and seeing all these insane differences, I had to make sense of it. I was like, why is this happening? And so in order to do that, I had to figure out what the definition of cuisine was. How do these cuisines, or any cuisine in anywhere in the world, how does it form? What are the factors that come together to shape that cuisine? And so I think for the South, it's the, the immigrants that go there, their cooking traditions, their agricultural practices, and then it's the geography of that place. That side of Virginia is closer to the water. We're higher up in the mountains. 
Uh, and it's the plants and animal breeds that end up thriving in that area. Because there were, I guess, during the first, I don't know, 100 years, there was so much experimentation going on trying to see which plants and which animal breeds could withstand the geography and the, and the climate of each individual place. Uh, and then the ones that stick, those are the ones that become everyone's favorite. And those are the ones that kind of get uh, snuck into your DNA. And then you're like, you're born craving greasy beans if, you, if you're from, from Appalachia. So how do you preserve these microregions? Right, because this is the paradox. You want to preserve it, but simultaneously, I know who you are. You also want to blend it too. How does this happen? Well, what's really interesting to think about is if if that equation is true, if that formula is true, and that these things make up a cuisine, and how cuisines are formed, doesn't that also apply to the future? And if you look at if you start to look at each individual place and the, the cultural influences that are within each place, now it's, it's a lot different. I don't see why that can't be the food of that place. Are you, I mean, I have to try to be optimistic, but it's really hard to think that these are regions, these micro-regions are going to be preserved. It's all going to head towards some homogeneous type of thing. Like, what can you do and the fellow diners and the restaurant community do to preserve this because it seems like a battle that's gonna be lost. Oh, it's terrifying. I mean, it really is so, it's, it's terrifying. It's why I, I do the, the work that I try to do. It's, it's, it can disappear so quickly. And once it's gone, it's gone. And, and it seems like people are starting to care. Uh, I think education is the key. Like, Talking about it is the key. Keeping the story alive by moving it forward, by making it more interesting, by, by discussing how it's changing. Just as long as that tradition, the historical aspect is still linked in that storytelling part, that's how it stays alive, I think. And how do all the micro-regions of the South, how does that fit into the larger culinary fabric of the American culinary canon? Right, like it's interesting to think about. Because isn't it essentially that is American food? If I think about it, <laughs> it's crazy, huh? I mean, if if you if you yeah, I mean, if you look at the history of, of cooking in America, it's really fascinating. Um, so much of it was French trained chefs in the South. We're talking about hotels and restaurants, and, and the in the caterers. So that was a really neat moment um, when when you start to see all the all the all the, all the dishes that came out of these uh, cultural influences that were there and the ingredients that were there, but with all this French technique. New Orleans is a perfect example of that. Then what does that mean for the rest of us, not from the South, right? Like wherever I travel in America, and actually not even America anymore, like the world at large, I'm seeing Southern restaurants. And how do you feel about this? Is that one way it's going to be preserved where people in, say, Northern California are opening up restaurants that are basically museums of a micro-region of the South? Because you're seeing that. Yeah, I was so protective for so long that when people would ask me that question, can you put a Southern restaurant in New York City? Can you put a Southern restaurant in California? I was so hard-headed that you know, it has to be the products grown in the South 
been served in the South, that Southern food. But now I've come to realize that Southern food is, it's a, it's a particular emotion. It's a, it's a, it's a way of creating food that makes someone feel a certain way. I mean, soul food, you, can, you see it everywhere in the world. Every place has, has soul food. And I think as far as America is concerned, when we start talking about the soul food of America, it's, it's certainly in the South. And I think that can go anywhere as long as it's, it's, it's still focused on creating that, that emotion. Is that what's changed since the last book? Is that you're more open to it happening outside of the South? Like what caused that sort of softening of that stance? <laughs> Many things. Um, I mean, it's hard. It's really, really hard to, to nail down these, these ingredients and beg farmers um, to grow them having crop failures and, and who knows what going wrong. Um, and I think what happens when people get disgruntled and get frustrated, they just quit. And so that's, that's, a, big, that's a big fear of mine. So I think now it's it's the more the merrier. I, I mean, I love seeing Asabal pigs being raised in on the West Coast. You were the first person to tell me about that. Delicious. Right? <laughs> I was like, what? That story of those pigs are crazy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's so neat to, to fast forward from, what was that, 15 years ago. Can you wow. tell everyone what, ha- what, what the story of the Asabal pig? Well, Asabal pigs came from Spain when the Spaniards were trying to find where they were going to camp out. And so they, would, they were dumping off all these um, food sources so that when they came back, they would have multiplied and, and become plentiful. Well, they never took over that area. And so this island and many other islands around the South still have these breeds that have never left that island. And uh, it's just like, it's like a time capsule. It's fascinating. And they were delicious time capsules. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> yeah, it's the, it's the Iberico time capsule. And you were telling me, I was like, yeah, that's a cool story. Let's, how can we taste it? <laughs> so how has your idea of Southern food, and sorry to just repeat this, but I know it is, and it's hard to extrapolate because you have always been at the forefront of trying to figure out what Southern food is, but it's changed your perception of it's changed, right? And like, how has that made your job as a chef different? Because I don't know how I know it is. You know, Chambrac 12, 15, 10 years ago was cooking different food than you're cooking now. What's changed? Well, I think it's the attitude of not what is Southern food. I think it's more what can Southern food be? If you look at other cultures as um, inspiration, Japan, for instance, and start to look at the gazillions of things that have been done with rice. Those, those things happen over time and they, they start to create layers and layers of deliciousness that, that we don't have uh, in the South. And so now that we have all these ingredients back and we're starting to get that, that pantry restocked, who says we can't Start. Who says, you know, a pinto bean can't be inoculated with mold that tastes insanely delicious and put back in to 
my grandma's recipe for soup beans. And is that how you can keep your dream of what Southern food could be, like this platonic vision by your travels around the world, like you just came back from Japan? Like, how can you explain to someone that like, yeah, I can get inspiration from Japanese food? And how does that incorporate into your vision of the South? It goes back to protecting that story and that tradition, but not being totally indebted to it and and tied down by it. Um, It's just as long as it's a part of it. And I think, and recently I I just did an event and um, I wanted to make um, soup beans and and cornbread, which is something I had once a week as a kid. What's soup beans? (laughs) Anyone know what soup beans is? Wow, no one. I mean, I, I, you guys are all picturing what I'm picturing. It's like a soupy bean soup, <laughs> you know, but it's not. Um, it's usually pinto beans, but it's always a dried um, green bean of sorts, um, the, the bean itself. And it's just slow, slow cooked. I mean, if you've had red, if you've had, um, red beans and rice in New Orleans or beans and rice at a Mexican restaurant, it's that idea of slow cooking beans or peas down and developing that concentrated like comfort flavor. And so pinto beans, um, the way my family would make them, is you just make it thinner, like soupier. Um, and you always put uh, raw onion on top. And then at the table, you have a lot of different um, condiments that you eat in between bites. Because if you're eating just, if you're, if, if you're like, Dave, it's time for dinner. What do we have, Mom? Soup beans. You're like, soup beans again? <laughs> and so, I mean, adults feel that way as well. And so you see, um, when you would sit down at my grandmother's table, there would be the soup beans. But just like Korean food, there would be all these different condiments, sweet ones, sour ones, acidic ones, spicy ones, super fresh ones, salty ones. And so um, you watch the old timers eat, and it's like you take a bite of soup beans, and then you eat something sour. You kind of let it resonate. Like take kimchi. a bite of, exa- yes. <laughs> take, a, take a bite of soup beans, eat something acidic, kind of let it resonate. And it makes that humble food way more interesting. So if, this is how I just heard it. Southern food has all its origins in Korean food. <laughs> I actually write about it in the beginning of the book. I remember one time I was just deathly hungover. And I was like, man, I got to go get something to cure this hangover. And he's like, oh, I've got the perfect place. And we go to this Korean restaurant over um, in Koreatown. And you go upstairs and... Um, With the Arian. Yes, yes. And it's no longer there yeah. anymore. And you order this dish. I had no idea what you ordered or said. And I start eating it. And I'm like, holy cow, this is my and grandma's... I knew exactly what you were thinking. This is my grandma's chicken and dumplings. I was like... <laughs> <laughs> I was so confused. And, and you're like, oh, man, I, I'm afraid to tell you, Sean, but Korea is way older than the South. <laughs> So it's a private joke we've been having with each other for a few years. But it's neat. If you look at every culture, there's always that like simple dish of broth and flour and meat and figuring out some way to create this dish that haunts your memories and you crave so much. I think that's so neat. But going back to restoring these ideas, right? Like you can take from new countries and new travels. 
but the thing that I think has remained constant in my friendship and our professional relationship is like, you were always dead set on, uh, in my opinion, the ingredients. And those are the stories that you're trying to preserve, whether it's, you know, Glenn and Anson Mills or different farmers. Like, I remember you tending like your first farm. And I was like, this guy's out of his mind. I was definitely out of my mind. <laughs> you know, and like working like a lunatic, but I could see that you were beginning to uncover the only way you're going to be able to grow as a chef is by preserving these traditions. So would you agree that to preserve the traditions of the South, even if it becomes this, you know, mix of other cuisines, which I hope, hope it does, the only way you can preserve the South and the micro-regions is by ensuring that these ingredients are still grown. Oh, absolutely. And, and those seeds and those plants, those animal breeds, they carry just generations and generations of wisdom. And we can't just throw that, that wisdom away. Um, and another really interesting thing that a lot of people don't talk about or think about is Mother Nature tricks us and makes nutritious food delicious. And so we are idiots and we go for the most delicious thing and Mother Nature makes it the most nutritious thing. And so if our plants and our, and our seed varietals um, went through a period of genetic engineering because we had to, and we breed out all the flavor, a lot of the nutrition, um, then you break that and then it all just unravels. Then how come we keep on doing that if we know what the problem is? Oh, we're very good at that. Um, and there's nothing wrong with um, breeding plants and, and creating new things. That happens so much throughout the history of the South. I mean, it was a hub of experimentation agriculturally. Uh, I, I just One thing that we're doing as a restaurant, as soon as you walk in, there's a huge seed bank, and uh, it'll be a place where um, they'll be safe, <laughs> and um, they'll be the f they'll be there to educate people. Like that's the first thing you see. You're like, what is that? Why would you save all those seeds? You know, and then that starts the the whole dialogue of of the meal. So is it accurate to say that when Southerners are thinking about Southern food? and the things that they miss the most, and their grandma's cooking. They're nostalgic about the wrong things. They should be nostalgic <laughs> about preserving seeds. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I mean, yeah, that's like yeah. a serious no, thing. It's, 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 most people will go through their lives and never even think about the importance of saving those seeds, but they will spend their lives craving that nostalgia and going back for it time and time again and, and continue to cook it but you have to go, you have to, you have to dig another layer down to start to, to see what needs to happen to keep those traditions alive. If you start making Hoppin' John with Uncle Ben's rice, no one's going to want to eat it again because it tastes like cardboard. But who's buying Uncle Ben's rice then? I don't know. <laughs> um, and so... Nobody wants to make Hoppin' John anymore. No one wants to talk about the does, history of Does everyone John. know what Hoppin' John's is? Can you explain just for those? Peas that... and rice. Again, something another, uh, so many cultures have. Um, beans and rice or peas and rice. 
Um, this is a conversation that I think anyone in the creative field could, you know, understand because the struggle there for sure. And I know it's very present in your career is it seems those two goals of like preserving and creating are constantly at odds, right? Like how do you move forward with that? Because we talked about this the last time we were here uh, on your first book is that you said something to the, to, to the likes of, you know, you have to, to, to preserve, you almost have to destroy it simultaneously, right? Is, is that still an accurate statement? Yes, I think, I don't know about destroying it, but I think in, to, to move something forward, it has to be better. I think you'll move it even further forward if it's, if it's better. And a, a great example of that would be taking traditional dishes from, from my family or anywhere in the South, using those ingredients to make soy sauces or misos or anything, any, any, any sour elements or anything to help elevate the deliciousness because that's when you grab someone's attention. When you bite into something and it's like, what, just, what did I just eat? Then now you're curious and I have your attention. So like our friend uh, Renee and all the Scandinavian chefs, they're implementing a lot of umami, but they're making it all with Scandinavian ingredients. And I'm, it's a real, like, uh, it's a hard thing to ask. And it's, it's not like semantics. It's like, is that Scandinavian food? Now, I know you have a ton of different ferments, and you've mastered a lot of different ways. Now, if you start to take only Southern ingredients, which you've done, and you make them taste like a miso and a soy or something else that's delicious, and it doesn't have any of its origins, in the South or a microregion of South, what is that? I don't think that can, I don't, I mean, that's something we're very careful about. I don't think you can do that. I think it's just sneaking it in. You don't even have to talk about it. You know, it's just, you sneak it in, don't make a big deal out of it. If we instruct, what are, we, what are you we, talking about? We instruct, <laughs> we, instru- yeah, we instruct the servers to play dumb. I don't know what you're talking about. Because it, that, it, it's, when, I, when, I, when I founded Husk, I didn't want to use balsamic vinegar because that starts a conversation about Italy. And then we stop talking about the South. So it's, it's kind of the same thing. And if we can build a pantry of sweet, sour, salty, bitter, spicy umami out of our ingredients and have that on the shelf when we're making chicken and dumplings, we can make it way better than the Korean version. <laughs> I'm going to let him have it. <laughs> um, but to be, to be honest, his, his many versions of chicken and dumpling, your grandma's, is insanely delicious. Where did you make that for me? I don't even remember. I don't remember either. It was so good. Um, but you're telling me <laughs> for all the different ways you've created umami, that, that's not Southern anymore? Well, I don't, I don't know that those ingredients are Southern because it's a tradition from somewhere else. But there is, if you look back through, um, if you start digging through the micro-regions again, if you go to uh, where I'm from, there was a ton of German immigrants. And so I grew up eating sauerkraut made from corn. I just thought everyone ate it. I thought it was just our, I thought it was a part of every meal. 
Later, I come to find out it's German immigrants craving that flavor and using the ingredients that are that are there and that are um, that are thriving in that place. To that's what, when I was speaking earlier about that, these flavors getting getting stuck in our DNA, and we like are born to crave these certain things. This is a conversation we're gonna have to like. Sean and I are gonna have to continue to have because I I actually don't know the answer, and I can agree with you, but also I can see how you preserving Southern traditions and microregions and ingredients and the narrative that's so important to you, maybe the only way for it truly to survive is to find a way, like a new host for it. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, definitely. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Today's Day Chang Show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Hiring can be a slow process. Cafe Altura COO Dylan Miskowitz needed to hire a director of coffee for his organic coffee company, but he was having trouble finding qualified applicants. So he switched to ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Its technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. So you get qualified candidates fast. Dylan posted his job on ZipRecruiter and said he was impressed by how quickly he got great candidates to apply. He also used ZipRecruiter's candidate rating feature to filter his applicants so he could focus on the most relevant ones. And that's how Dylan found his new director of coffee in just a few days. With results like that, it's no wonder that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. Try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ziprecruiter.com slash Chang, C-H-A-N-G. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash C-H-A-N-G. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Today's show is also brought to you by Masterclass. Masterclass lets you learn from the best with exclusive access to online classes taught by masters of their craft. You can learn how to barbecue from Aaron Franklin. And I just saw that Malcolm Gladwell, one of my favorite authors anywhere, is teaching a class on Masterclass as well. So I'm very excited to check it out. With over 60 different instructors across tons of categories, there's literally something for everyone. The Masterclass app is accessible on your phone, web, or Apple TV, and each class is broken out into individual video lessons and downloadable materials, which you can explore at your own pace. It's very instructive for cooking. Some of my peer group is in there, Thomas Keller, Gordon Ramsay, again, Alice Waters, Aaron Franklin again, who's got some of the best tips out there very much think that from a culinary perspective, they do a good job of providing instructional videos and very useful videos for how to become a better cook. I highly recommend you check it out. Get unlimited access to every masterclass. And as a listener, you get 15% off the annual all access pass, which is great because if you want to learn about anything outside of cooking, you can follow all of these great masters. Go to masterclass.com slash Chang. That's C-H-A-N-G. That's masterclass.com slash Chang for 15% off Masterclass. And now, back to the show. The Southern food and all its micro-regions, would you agree? Or is it a cuisine of necessity? Five years ago, I would have told you that's like... It is, it is a cuisine of poverty. It is a cuisine of necessity. It is a cuisine of survival. But that pissed a lot of people off where I'm from. Why? why? Because not everybody was poor. Not everybody was surviving. Not everybody was, 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 was trying to um, 
dig through and, and, and eat only soup beans. Um, plus, I also think there's some pride involved in that. You know, like, what do you, you mean you're always referring to us as, as, as poor? As, why, would, you know, why would you even do that? That takes away from, that takes away so, so much of it. Because, I don't know, people, people are proud of where they're from. People are proud of their families. And you start talking smack. And this cuisine was invented in homes. Most of it was, yes. Um, and and in, in, on the farms and in the gardens and on the shrimp boats. And I think what would be uh, more interesting to think about is how it naturally came to be. Like just naturally, without going out and saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create this dish or I'm going to create this recipe. If you look at the classic Southern dishes and you just wonder how they naturally ended up there, that's really neat. You think they evolved just because delicious things go with other delicious things, you know, it just happened? And certain, certain things, certain ingredients thrive in certain areas. And then if you add on that, that cultural element of those traditions and those, those flavors that are stuffed inside of the DNA, you start to get, I mean, I could spend, and I will spend the rest of my life trying to understand all these things. So, like, one of the things I've been trying to figure out is how restaurants play in the greater conversation of just how we eat in the world at large. Not everyone eats at restaurants. Some of the best foods in the world don't exist in restaurants. I haven't worked in a restaurant in a year. It's been amazing. (laughs) It's been amazing. (laughs) Incredibly rejuvenating. It's just been amazing. Why do we do this to ourselves? Good question. Good question. (laughs) I don't have an answer to that one. Next interview. then are, you just brought it up. Are, are restaurants helping the cause of preserving and pushing Southern food forward? Is it, is it something that should even exist in restaurants? Because coming back from India this year, a lot of people are like, no, that's just not how people eat. Or if you go to the Philippines, they're like, no, that's not how people eat. Yes, you can get good food in a restaurant, but it's not what a lot of people feel is where the best eating is at. Oh, well, we know that. We know the best eating is at grandma's table and, and anywhere and anywhere. But you can home. say that you're from the South. A lot of people here have never been to a Southern grandma. <laughs> you know, is, is a restaurant yeah. the only place for us to experience this? Yeah, and I think that's the importance of restaurants. Um, but it's also important for foundations to exist, like the Southern Foodways Alliance and people who are making documentaries and writing books and, and um, involving all sorts of different ways to carry the story on. Restaurants, I mean, if you think about it, how many people come to Noodle Bar in a day? A few hundred, a lot, yeah. That's a lot of people that you can harass about seeds. (laughs) Well, so I see your points. Um, Then... What's the next generation of the Southern restaurant then? That's what I'm actually most excited about. We've spent the last 15 years figuring it out, the cuisine itself, figuring it out and what it was, uh, what it is now. And the future is, is what, it, what can it be? But that's also terrifying because if you start, we saw what happened with fusion cooking in the 80s and 90s. 
It was awesome. <laughs> Give me one fusion. Wasabi mashed yeah. potatoes. <laughs> Brilliant. Soy beurre blanc with wasabi. Delicious. Coconut shrimp. You guys all love it. There's a reason it still exists. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. You got to be careful. <laughs> so let's just say in uh, another 15 years where our sons are now going to be in the audience, not as babies, but adolescents, and you're we'll coming be, we'll out with... In our late 50s. Yes. And um, um, you're coming out with another magnum opus book about Southern cooking. What's, what do you feel like is your goal that the audience then will have an understanding of that they don't today? I think what I hope will always happen is the understanding that it's never ending. There's too much to learn. There's too much to uncover. There's too much to celebrate. There's too much to study. It can go on and on and on. And we've, I mean, speaking from my experience, especially with this book, it just makes me realize how little I know. And this is like, I'm obsessive over this stuff. And I'm learning so many things uh, all, all the time. And I think that's really neat to inspire people and encourage people to explore and be, and be curious. And as someone that's been one of your biggest fans watching you grow, both as a chef and as a person, right? And as we've matured, hopefully for the better. It's been amazing to see you actually be on that path. And when I meant destroy, I meant that in the creative sense. Sure. You've reinvented yourself by like literally saying the old version of Sean was wrong. This is the new version. And then you get to a point and then that happens again and again. Like, and now it's, I have no restaurants. <laughs> Just a blank page. Just anything can happen. Before we take questions from the audience, can you talk about this, this new restaurant that is not just a restaurant, like in a traditional sense? Well, I haven't been in a restaurant in, in a year. And um, I don't want to go back to the way it is when I, the way it was when I left. I really don't want to. And so I want to create a place that's less stressful to be in. I want to create a place that you actually get really excited to go to because maybe you'll leave less stressed and you'll, you'll learn some new tool um, to take better care of yourself. So downstairs will be um, a restaurant. Um, I would say the major inspiration would be Chez Panisse um, called Redbird. And uh, that'll be the simplest food I can possibly make with all those little hidden things in there. All <laughs> <laughs> those secret things in there. Uh, and then upstairs will be um, a tasting menu only restaurant, a smaller restaurant, because I love both of those cuisines and they both kind of need each other to exist. Well, the, the tasting menu restaurant certainly needs the casual restaurant to exist. Um, but it's really neat because... We, you know, uh, uh, broccoli walks in the door. The, the florets can go upstairs and the stalk can go downstairs. So we're, 
we're working together and it's it's a it's a smart way i think it's a smart way to cook um, and that's definitely the Chez Panisse model. If you haven't been, it's two restaurants. One's so cool. casual, the other one's more of the formal dining experience. Um, this is a different topic uh, for a question from the audience, but it definitely is touches upon your new restaurant and you being away from restaurants for the past year. And, and it's, it's funny because a lot of our, a lot of our early memories were uh, getting pretty drunk and, wrest- and wrestling. Yeah, and, and wrestling. Uh, <laughs> and it's funny, I was thinking about this. I was like, hey, can we think about that fondly? Because that's a life we both don't live anymore. Oh, I'm so glad it all happened because it made me the person I am today. Can we here. say those are fun nights? Hell yeah, they were fun. <laughs> <laughs> I caught a cab. <laughs> yeah. I don't only- know how that happened. <laughs> Too much fun. Um, and then you almost died once in Nashville. How? You ate. <laughs> you ate two oh, that's pieces right. that's actually of the hottest chicken on the face of the planet after that, I told you not to, yes. and the people in the restaurant told you not to. We edited a lot of that out at Ugly Delicious, but <laughs> I literally almost died. You're right. <laughs> we were doing a dinner that night, and I was not uh, in any shape. <laughs> That was, that was, you're right, I almost died. But uh, uh, the audience member writes, Sean, I also recently got sober. I'm curious about your relationship with food and how that's changed. How has that changed now that you're sober? Yeah, I think sobriety to me is, I, I would rather think about it um, it's a way of thinking, like the recovery community and saying that I'm in recovery. You can be in recovery from rage. You can be in recovery from codependency. You can be in recovery from gambling. And it's really just a mindset of... Are you being, telling me I need to go to the rehab shop? I've heard about your gambling antics. Um, you know, it's really just, it's a way of approaching each day with... Um, an open mind and clarity and, and gratitude and self-compassion. I mean, that's one, been one of the biggest things that I've learned from the recovery communities. Go easy on yourself. Easier said than done, though. Not really. I mean... It's not easy. But it's not impossible. It's been amazing to see you come out the other side. <laughs> And I'm incredible. We're all, we all love you so much. And I think you've been an incredible voice for our profession about being so honest and transparent about your, your problems. And I think it, I know for sure it's empowered me and it's empowered a lot of other people that admire you. So thank you for doing that. Uh, Thank you. Um, Sean, besides sorghum, what are some fermentation projects you're excited for at the Kudzu complex? Um, hmm. So, growing up, there was this jar always on the table that um, my family just referred to as, as mixed pickles. And it was um, corn, beans, uh, peppers, um, and cabbage, but it was all sour. It was a, it was a, it was a, it was a sauerkraut of those 
ingredients. And that's just one of the things that I want to look at and say, all right, how can we, how can we add another layer of deliciousness to this? Um, we are definitely starting with the traditional things. Um, this is a question since you're in New York City. Where's your go-to slice in New York City? <laughs> if I read this correctly. My favorite pizza here is Marta. Really? It's a good, good pizza. But you want, you want the super thin crust. I like the super thin crust. I need some more pizza experience. Would you ever open up a pizzeria? I wouldn't know where to start. <laughs> I wouldn't be uh, putting Slim Jims on there. <laughs> Don't laugh. Pizza. Why, that's basically pepperoni to begin with, guys. Can you imagine seeing those little slices of Slim I bet you'd be delicious. <laughs> right behind coconut shrimp. Um, a question about your new restaurant again. Um, and I'm going to add to this question. I loved Husk and Monero's and McCrady's, and I want to hear more about this. And you're going to get this open. And this is, I, I, I genuinely want to know what happens after it's super successful, if you get there, you know, is expansion, like how do you say enough? Because this is a problem all chefs have, it seems. I will I have so much confidence in this next phrase that I will go on record and say there will only be one of those ever, 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 ever. How did, what did you learn from opening all those restaurants? And it was sort of crazy. Who are you talking to? (laughs) (laughs) No, it was crazy, man. It was crazy. We're both crazy. Really? You started a show called Crazy Dudes. Yeah. I mean, no matter what, he says this now, but I know deep down it's just about trying to do it better. And this is the problem. I don't know if a lot of people that are following the industry or even journalists understand it. It may not be about you. It may be because you've had people, you stay with one restaurant for 10 plus years and you're like, wait, these people want opportunity. I can provide that opportunity. And that's how it happens. So I'm oh, going to... I'll happily do that. I just, it won't be a Redbird or an Audrey and I won't be in the kitchen. <laughs> um, what effect has your addiction and recovery had on your culinary approach? Well, when I, when I was, <laughs> when I was leaving um, rehab, my counselor said, I want your next tattoo to just be the word moderation. And it's something that I will always struggle with. It's, it's the same thing with food. And it's the same thing with photography for me now or guitars. It's like, I just, I, I'm, I'm an investigator. You know, I just I constantly want to be learning. And um, I would say that that kind of addiction is way better than my last one. <laughs> Um, how much has it changed since you started, right? The culture of the kitchen. It's bizarre. It's really bizarre, but it's great. I really think it's amazing. Um, I was thinking about it today. We're, We're trying to create a place based around a question. 
What's the stress level? Every decision that we'll make will start with that. And if it's a nine on a scale of one to 10, then we'll have to ask the question, is it worth that stress? And I think this generation's already been asking that, that question. I don't, they're realizing that it's not worth that kind of abuse and stress um, and workaholism. Smart. How can you ensure, right? Like, and I, I ask this a lot, like, cause we've, co- we, I think we've both tried to come out the other side and Lord knows I've tried to get better in, in so many different ways, but do you think that it's going to make food more delicious to the customer's perspective? I do. Uh, I think it's going to be a way better experience for the customer because if we're happy and healthy, we're taking care of ourselves first, then we can take better care of the food and we can take better care of the guest. I mean, I've had a lot of hungover brunches and there are some plates I didn't give a shit about that went out, you know, like it's, that's just the thing. Like if you're clear headed and you're happy and you're healthy and your team is, it's going to be better food. It's going to be simpler food. Is your food going to be quote healthier then? I haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> you know, cause it's, is it, is it, is it inaccurate or wrong of me to say that Southern food, like it's not California spa cuisine. Well, there's a reason for that. And it's, it's very clear to me. Um, taste uh, a plum in California and taste a plum in the South. You don't need to do anything to the one in, in California. You've got to cover this one in sugar and bake it into a pie. Are you trying to get me in trouble, man? I got all kinds of trouble a few years ago. <laughs> I was leading into that. Um, I think Southern food ended up heading in that direction because we bred all the flavor out. And so to maintain that comfort that we seek in that in, in soul food, that was naturally in the ingredients. So you think it's possible for the flavor to come back to the ingredients? That's what we've been working towards. And so, you know, California has that advantage because of their geography and their climate. Um, well, and their beliefs. Um, but <laughs> I love California. Um, <laughs> um, yes, I think if we focus on um, vibrancy and let that lead the, the creative process, how can we make this more vibrant, more alive? It'll inherently be, be um, healthier, but I, wouldn't, I don't ever see myself saying I'm really excited about making a healthy recipe tonight. Um, I wanted to, to share with the audience one of the happiest moments of my life was with you when we were with Alan Benton. That was amazing. What happened that day? How did that even happen? I don't know. It was. Can you yeah. explain what we did? Because it was so weird. These mountains are so beautiful. The Smoky Mountains, just, I mean, just majestic. We hop in the car drive, I don't know, we thought we were driving like five minutes down the road. We drove like two and a half hours up this mountain. Um, we drove actually through North, to North Carolina. Yes, from Tennessee. If you don't know who Alan Benton is, he's one of the greatest. Cure masters. Yes. 
And he took us to a secret ramp spot. That he'd been going to since he was a teenager. A hill like this. That's the like, steepest hill. I've, I mean, I felt like one of those goats like walking on the... Have you seen those things? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think about it a lot. I was like, how did we... It was like we were transported into some magical land of ramps. They're just everywhere. It was, it was like a psychedelic trip. I'm serious, guys. It was so crazy. And, and then we... We, we, we come down off the mountain and we park beside this like f- beautifully flowing creek and they start unpacking potatoes and bacon and cast iron skillets and going to the, washing the ramps in the creek. We all, you're, you're adding out that we were manual labor. <laughs> right. And these are real ramps where real roots yeah. and they were very hard. To, to take out. Yeah, that's one of my that's one of my greatest greatest memories is eating that plate of food with with Sharon and Alan and and, and all of us. I mean, what I mean, the work that that went into that plate of food and the journey to get there was just. And it couldn't have been simpler. It was one of the best meals I've ever had. I've and I never share this with people, but you're here, and I know that's the experience you want guests to have. I've tried to create dishes inspired by that exact day. In fact, there's some recipes in the book inspired by that. But it's just got to be in that place. And how does that happen, right? Because I know that was a special thing. It was literally like Alan Benton's Secret Garden. And if you can make a diner feel that magic, it's going to be the most amazing restaurant in the history of the world. I agree. We'll try. Um, one last question that I have. I didn't get to all of these. Um, your son, he's here. Beautiful baby boy, Leo. Um, do you want your son in this industry? Oh, the answer is hell no. <laughs> and that's not to be disrespectful. No. Like, can you explain? I, I, did, I did enough of it for both of us. Um, we, as human beings, are not designed and built for that kind of stress every day. Um, it's just really, it's not smart. <laughs> it's, really, it's really unhealthy, which is why we're trying to figure out a way to create a restaurant where we can, we can continue to be happy and healthy and still chase these contributions. Um, we're really hoping that Leo be um, a mayor. I hope so too. Um, he, he's so so cute, um, and I know that I can speak on behalf of a lot of different cooks and people in this industry that we're all rooting for you in this new restaurant that you're going to open up uh, because what you're trying to do, I think, is going to be instrumental to the future of a better, more balanced work life for for all of us. And um, I wish you nothing but the best for this book tour of yours, and hopefully you guys all enjoy it. Ladies and gentlemen, Chef Chambra. Well, that was my conversation with Chef Sean Brock. He's on book tour right now. Check out if he's coming to a city near you. 
one of the best, most articulate, most knowledgeable chefs around on any food, not just Southern food. And by his book, The South, Essential Recipes and New Explorations. Beautiful book. Again, one of the best new cookbooks I've seen in a while. I uh, want to get to a couple Ask Dave at MajorDomoMedia.com questions. And again, there's two ways to do it. You can send it at AskDave at MajorDomoMedia.com. Or if you give us five stars on the iTunes pod page and leave us a question, we will answer it. Um, from the iTunes five-star page, Alex in LA asks, salt is clearly a very important ingredient for all dishes as I've started thinking about it more and more ever since reading your Unified Theory of Deliciousness article. We did this article three or four years ago with Scott Dadich when he was the editor of Wired. It's an insanely self-indulgent title, but whatever, it's cheeky. Anyway, what are the different kinds of salt you use in your restaurants and brands that you'd recommend for home cooks? All the way from seasoning a fried egg to more larger crystals such as sea salt and kosher salt. Alex, thank you for sending that question in. Man, salt is, I think, super important, obviously, because it makes food so much tastier. But... Maybe it's overrated simultaneously. Not overrated, but the the marketing behind it. Um, there's needs to be something new in salt. And it's not just because I was promoting something that we were doing earlier, the Momofuku's own seasoning blend, but I'm saying like, it's overrated in the sense that everyone's like kosher salt, iodinized salt, Florida cell, Malden, Himalayan sea salt, uh, so many different times. The only thing I hate is that crappy table salt packet that, that I find not suitable to cook with. Any kind of kosher salt is okay with me. People swear with Diamond Crystal. I love Diamond Crystal, but it's not always easy to find or buy, especially in New York. I, I don't always find it. So I use whatever is a kosher salt, and it's not that much of a pain in the ass. Some French chefs I've worked for only use sea salt, like fine, fine sea salt. Someone like Josh Gaines literally gets deep ocean water and boils it down to make his own sea salt. You know, when I lived in Japan, some of the different chefs would use sea salt specific of the region that they're getting fish from and stuff like that. I really enjoy smoked salt. But for the most part, outside of restaurants, which can get pretty granular in the kinds of salt, I know that Malden is very popular because of the, the crystals of it all, but I actually don't love Malden. I think it's too salty. I'm much more of a fan of Florida Cell because I love that crunch, but that's just me. I think feels like I'm in the minority these days with Florida Cell. Most of the people that work at Momofuku really love Malden, which is great, but I just feel like there's nothing. It just tastes like salt to me, and I love the mineral aspects of Florida Cell or Cell Gris, like gray salt particularly with like fatty or foods or like a runny egg or a roasted lobe of foie gras. Salt has its purpose per dish, especially uh, when you're not, it's not cooking salt, but seasoning salt. Salt you use to garnish. And again, like I would never garnish really at home. So if you're talking about a home cook, kosher salt is probably the best. I don't have really any fine salt if I have to use it, I use it. Sometimes I use the, like the Balian sea salt. That's fine. Like I'm not really that snooty about salt at home. The only thing I won't use is uh, iodinized table salt that just you know looks like table sugar. Uh, everyone's familiar with it. That I find very hard to cook with, and I don't really like the flavor. 
But restaurant salts, if you went into any of our restaurants, but if you went to like Co, I probably, you'd see celery, Florida cell, smoked salt, different kinds of Japanese salt. You would have savory salts, the ones that we make, Momofuku, right? I know most of our restaurants use, not most, we all use savory salt, which is like an umami-like salt. Yeah, I think there's probably five to six different kinds of salt. But again, that's restaurant cooking and home cooking. I, I don't know if I would ever take it that far. Ugh. That's a lot of talk about salt. But I'll tell you what, for sure, and this is sort of a quick, my opinion is fact, diamond kosher salt is great. It's so great to cook with, but if you don't have it, don't freak out. I'm tired of talking to home cooks and they're like, oh, if I don't have diamond crystal, it's a nightmare. Like, no, it's not a nightmare. You should be well-versed enough to use any kind of salt, truly, because recipes sometimes are not great. You should always salt to taste and you know, a lot of people don't like fine sea salt at home. I think it's fine. You should just be whatever, whatever's at hand. All right. Anyway, uh, Matt Weinberger emailed to askdave at majordomamedia.com. You told Dr. Duckworth, Angela Duckworth, that you rate your innate cooking talent as one out of 10. I find that hard to believe, but okay. I know hard work is ultimately more important than talent. What I want to know on a scale of one to 10, how do you rate your palate? Do you think critically about foods you're eating, asking questions and ingredients, techniques, etc.? Thanks. Well, thanks for sending that question in, Matt, to ask Dave at majordomamedia.com. Uh, really loved our rambling chat with Angela Duckworth. CEO, founder of The Character Lab and The Book Grit. I have often said, I don't think I'm naturally gifted at cooking, but that doesn't mean I'm a bad cook. I think I'm, you know, a really good cook. Um, It just doesn't come naturally to me. I have to work harder at it. I've seen people with better flow in the kitchen. Like, they just pick it up faster. They The aptitude to do better at cooking is better than me, but I think I've really turned myself through many hours and dedication to it to a really good cook. So that's, again, what I love about cooking. Someone might be a better, quote, cook than me, but I'm going to outcook them at the end of the day. I will make better food than them, and I just inherently believe that. Someone being more skilled than me or all of these things, these are all things that I can turn myself into. I can always make myself something that's uh, better. And skill... Very important in cooking, but what I love most and find most about cooking and find truthful about cooking is that if you really dedicate yourself, you will get better at that. And if you get the reps, um, no matter how much better someone else is than you, I have no doubt in my mind that hard work and dedication to cooking is the great equalizer. So while I might start off at one out of 10, I think I'm whatever. It doesn't matter on that scale. <laughs> when it comes to where I think I've had really good Help is my palate and my knowledge of food, but my palate, I don't know, it's probably 9 out of 10. I don't believe in 10 out of 10s. Um, I have not a super palate. Uh, the people that have the, the very sensitive palates that can taste salty, sweet, sour, bitter, the super tasters, I think are actually really bad at uh, tasting food because it's just too sensitive. It's uh, too off uh, the mark for most people that don't have that sensitive palate. And one of the things I learned early on with travel is wherever you go in this world, people have different kinds of palates. And when I started cooking in Japan, everything I made was too salty because I had a New York City palate. And when I spent some time in southern Japan, everyone in southern Japan thought my food was too salty because I had adjusted my palate for 
cooking in Tokyo and people in Osaka in the southern regions, all right, the, the Kanto regions versus the Kansai regions would always say people in Tokyo, they just cook food with soy sauce. It's too salty. It really is a relative thing. And I think the more I've traveled, the more I try to understand what are some of the predominant patterns, particularly salt, that people might like. And I somehow, I think over the years of cooking in an open kitchen at Momofuku have really like fine-tuned my palate. And I can, you know, it's it, they're people with great palates. And for me, I tend to like think that it's pretty good. Uh, I don't know, like it should be good. It's my job, right? And I taste a lot of things. I take a lot of mental notes. And I think I have a good memory of cataloging dishes in my head. It's funny. It's when I watch um, Sean McVay, you may not know him. He's a, the, the coach for the Los Angeles Rams or someone like Aaron Rodgers. I don't have a photographic memory. I don't think they have a photographic memory either. But when you ask them about plays that happened years ago, even in high school, they can recall him pretty clearly. And I know myself and several other people in this business, and I'm sure gourmands in general that go out to eat, they can recall flavors and dishes. Maybe not the exact meal, but they know the flavors. For me, I can remember flavors. Not so much the progress of of dishes or exactly what the technique was, but I can, it's hard for me to articulate, but it's like a, seeing a color in my mind somehow. Like I can taste it. And I don't know if that does a good job for you, Matt, uh, of saying that, but my palate has made me a much better chef. And because of that, the thing that I think has been most important to me to develop my palate is learning to empathize with the other diner. It's something I always try to teach younger chefs that are trying to develop their palates for the first time or put stuff on the menu for the first time. You can't just think that if it tastes good to you, it's going to taste good to someone else unless you see their reaction, right? It's almost like an orgasmic reaction. You know that it's good. But that being said, thinking critically, empathizing uh, why someone might taste something a different way. Uh, There's a lot of complex things going on, and I am not an expert to explain the physiology components of like the palate structure and psychosomatic nostalgia, but you should always think about what you're eating and remember why things taste a certain way because there's only so many flavors out there, and it allows you to really appreciate when you taste something delicious. If you haven't listened to the podcast with Josh Skeens, both of them I think are great. The chef at Angler, formerly of Saison, you know, he, he says it best. Very few people know what eight or nine or 10 tastes like on a one to 10 ratio uh, scale of flavor. Most people only know that six, five to six is the best version of something. And when you have enough, you know, sometimes you don't need nostalgia. This is a digress, but like I remember few years ago, I was in a Korean barbecue in K-Town with Mark Bittman, Jose Andres, but we were witnessing an argument between two of the fathers of Spanish cuisine, Farhan Adria and Juan Marie Arzak. They were arguing about the, do you need a priori knowledge? Do you need to have understanding what tastes good for something to taste good to someone? And that's a whole nother conversation. It's, uh, you know, unfortunately, I think like, I don't want to talk about Kant and shit like that, but like, it's an interesting question. Do you need to have knowledge about something for it to taste good to you before, right? Do you need to have pre-existing knowledge? And I don't know what the answer is. And there's a lot of dishes that will be delicious to people, no matter where you are or what culture you're in. And this is uh, maybe 
appropriate for another podcast. I could go on and on and on about this conversation. It's incredibly interesting to me. I don't have the answer, but I will say that having some knowledge allows you to have some nostalgia for your palate. And, you know, I'm always open and searching for those flavors that are going to be delicious to everyone, regardless of your culture, these sort of universal flavors. And I think that more often they tend to be what's on your palate. And I think a lot of people, when you start cooking, cooking school, they tell you about its aroma, it's all of these things, and it's ambiance and all that shit. I have always said, in my mind, worry about what's on your tongue. Salt, sweet, sour, bitter, umami. That's it. And if you can't find that balance of how to mess around with that, with the right ingredients and the juxtaposition of that dish, that's the next level stuff. And it's easier said than done. I have no idea what I just said there. I'll shut the fuck up. Um, Thank you for sending those in. Please give us five stars on iTunes or however you rate this podcast. Stay tuned next week. Thank you, guys. 